1: Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and with me this fine evening to break down the USA's emphatic 3-0 win over Morocco is a man who I would like to immediately ask, was that an emphatic win? Joe Lowry, how say you? Are we saying it's emphatic or no?
2: Uh, Taylor, I don't know. (laughs) Man, you're asking the hard-hitting questions right off the bat. Mm -hmm. I think this game was a good performance in the United States. I'm not sure that it was emphatic. It felt to me like it was maybe a little closer than that 3-0 scoreline.
1: But still, like a a good performance, and I think the U.S. was pretty clearly the better team. Would it make you feel better to know that that introduction was slightly more friendly than the original one I was going to (laughs) use? I think so. What was the original one? A man who would never say anything negative about Cameron Carter-Vickers. It's Joe Uh, Lowry. Joe, I'm not going to let you defend that yet. We'll get to Cameron Carter-Vickers later on because that's exactly what Greg Berhalter did. He got to him in the second half. (laughs) We're going to talk about that. But first, we're going to talk about the USA's 3-0 win uh, starting at the beginning. But I want to get, which is what you tend to do, uh, per happily moment for me. (laughs) But I want to start overall with Joe. Like, what were your feelings on this one? Because to me, this was sort of the Thesis statement and a thing that you and I have discussed previously: that the U.S. playing in CONCACAF and World Cup qualifying against teams that are going to bunker makes it way harder to get a sort of realistic view of what the US is going to be because you're playing against teams with 10 players within 20 yards of the goal. It's tough to break that down. But when we play better opposition in the World Cup and they're a bit more expansive, a bit more open, my feeling was maybe we would see the US shine a bit more. And I do feel like they passed that test a little bit joe uh so i was very happy and i used that particular word that particular language for a reason would you say the u.s passed the test tonight and if there were say three components that they needed to obtain a passing grade <laughs> what were those components joe oh taylor you've been doing some pre-game, pre pre-podcasting reading not pre-game I mean, reading. Yeah, you wrote an article
2: dude <laughs> like, i read the article you did the writing that's amazing <laughs> Okay, so I'll get to that in just a second. I'll get to those three, the three parts of this test in just a second. But I want to zoom out really quick, mm-hmm. and I guess this, this is kind of linked together. Taylor, I want to hit at your your point about this Morocco team and really the context of this game. It is a whole different set of circumstances for this U.S. team in in this friendly, and it is a friendly, so it's a different game inherently than some of sure. those World Cup qualifiers. But it's a different context surrounding this game because Morocco is. Largely more talented than a lot of the teams that the U.S. played in the Ocho. I don't remember exactly what the FIFA ranking is, but 22, 24, something like that for Morocco. FIFA rankings aren't gospel, Mm -hmm. but that's still a decent indication of where this team is. They came out and played a little bit. And for the U.S., I think that was a really good test. And now I'll get to that second bit. I did write an article at at, uh, full-time for Backfield. So the three bits and pieces of this test I think the U.S. passed is one... They got their healthy core players on the field together. We saw Polisic, we saw Tim Wea, Jesus Ferreira, we saw Brendan Aronson and Musa and Adams and, and Jedi. We saw those players on the field together, and that is really important in this window with six, now only five games left before the World Cup. The second thing is we saw some new faces, right? We got new faces in the second half. CCV maybe isn't quite a new face, but you can still kind of lump him into that group. CCV, Haji Wright, Joe Scalley, Malik Tillman. Uh, shoot. And then and then we saw De La Torre and Weston McKenney who aren't new faces. But still, we got some new looks at those players and, and some decent data on them in that time. And the last thing, and we'll talk plenty about this later, I'm sure, yep. is the US added a new wrinkle. This this is like this is extra credit on the test for me. It wasn't something that we absolutely had to see. But Taylor, I've been thinking more and more about how, one, how little time there is before the World Cup, and two, how much time that these coaches and coaching staffs from England and from whoever else the U.S. is going to have to face in that group, and we still don't know the full group yet, but how much time these coaching staffs have to watch film on each other. And the U.S. has become a little predictable, I think, and not in the worst way, but they're a little predictable at this point. And we saw the U.S. pull out a different possession shape defensive shape combo, I think, than we've ever seen before. We've seen each of the individual pieces, but I liked seeing different things pieced together and seeing some fluidity. I think that's a really nice uh, nice extra bonus on top
1: of this result and on top of this performance. So let's uh, break those three points down a little bit more. I first want to mention that I did have some pushback. I tweeted that this was a top five performance for the U.S. under Berhalter, and I think no one pushed back on the idea that it was a friendly, which would have been fair, because it's not World Cup qualifying, it's not the Gold Cup, it's not Nations League, it's not necessarily a meaningful game. But it is a Morocco team that uh, I've watched previously and yeah. uh, for African Cup of Nations qualifying that I've watched at the World Cup. And they are a very good team with a lot of talent, unless we forget one of the the main things we were told in the very beginning of this one. Their last 30 games, I believe it was, it's uh, 21 wins, one loss, and eight draws. So for them to have that record, the talent that they do, Atra Fakimi would be the name, but there are plenty of other very talented footballers in that team. I I would go so far as to say they are on par, if not overall a better squad than the U.S. has, at least when it comes to the kind of initial impression when you look at their clubs and some of the player histories. And so for the United States to... Really not have too many issues, in my mind, in this one. But instead, that they made Morocco look uncomfortable early and yeah. often really stood out to me and made me very pleased. And that did start from the opening minutes. I think Atraf Hakimi is dispossessed three times inside, like, 60 seconds inside the first three minutes. Uh, culminating in the Jesus Ferreira sort of low shot that, like, he's trying to bend in and gets pushed wide. But it's still an impressive start to the U.S. And maybe that's where we should continue. When you saw this lineup, Joe... What were your initial impressions? Because we knew it would be, or we assumed it would be four-three-three, 3 3 maybe with a little back three experimentation, and we did get that. But it was Matt Turner in goal. It was Jedi, Long, Zimmerman, Cannon uh, along your back four. Brendan Aronson in the midfield alongside Tyler Adams and Yunus Musa. Christian Pulisic, Jesus Ferreira, and Timothy Weah up top.
2: So this is a weird one because Greg Peralta just straight up told Tudiene his lineup uh, odd, for this game odd. like two days ago, <laughs> yesterday. I don't remember when it was at
1: this point. But Joe, I want to pause you for a second. Yeah, did go. you feel like that, there was a chance that was a trick? Because like, like two hours before the game, I was ready to write out the lineups and thought like, I, would Maybe he always, do that? Would yeah. he mess with us? I know I, he did not. He in did a not.
2: World Cup qualifier, I think he absolutely would mess with yes. us. In a friendly, probably not. And so <laughs> I, I did think That's this fair. was a lineup when uh, Michele Giannone tweeted it out yesterday. Uh, So so we already kind of knew what was coming from this U.S. team, but we didn't know the shape. Personnel-wise, Taylor... I didn't have really any issues with this. I was excited to see Matt Turner get a look. Reggie Cannon over Yedlin struck me as strange initially, but now no longer does, and I'll talk about that in, in two seconds here. The rest of the back line made sense. Aaron Long over CCV or EPB. I, I get it. Baralter knows him and has a pretty strong relationship with him. And I think Long was was fine in this game. Maybe even a little bit better than CCV. And then you look in the midfield. Tyler Adams and Musa make sense. Weston McKennie still not all the way back yet from an injury, so he was just coming off the bench in this game. Brendan Aronson, Taylor for me was the weird one here and I, I talked a little bit about that earlier this week I don't love him in central midfield I don't love him as one of those number eights where we've seen him play for the U.S. multiple times in the past but as it turns out the joke was on me because that's not really what he did in this game yeah defensively he was pressing as a number eight alongside Yunus Musa, and, and Tyler Adams was behind them and, and maybe even more often in front of them in the in the U.S.'s press but in possession everything changed and this is the big tactical wrinkle that i referenced earlier and you just alluded to with that back 3 the us pressed in the 433 yes but in possession for the vast majority of this game it was reggie cannon moving from right back to right center back so then that makes a back 3 along with zimmerman and long then you have a double pivot in front of those players with Eunice Musa and Tyler Adams. And instead of Brendan Aronson being a number eight, kind of level with Eunice Musa or, or level with whoever's mm. across from him in midfield, he pushed a little higher. Or, or maybe the better way to phrase it is the double pivot pulled back a little bit. But either way, they were on different lines. And Aronson kind of just did the the tucked-in winger thing that he's done under brother before and looked good in those positions. So you had Aronson and Polisic across from each other, almost as dual 10s, those tucked-in wingers, we see those all the time for the U.S. And then out wide, you had Tim Weah occupying the right wing for the most part, and you had Jedi Robinson occupying the left wing with Jesus Ferreira in the middle. It was a nice change. One I didn't expect, it made sense why Cannon was suddenly involved over Yedlin Taylor, because as you've mentioned before on this show— He's been playing a bunch of right center back in Portugal for Boavista. DeAndre Yedlin, not so much. That's not really his thing. So it made sense all of a sudden once we saw this, the ball actually kick off in the first minute, it made sense why Brawlter went with Aronson and Cannon over maybe Yedlin and De La Torre because he had specific jobs in mind for those
1: players. And I did enjoy that. I really enjoyed the adaptability and the sort of evolution at times we saw from this team. And I'll start with Brendan Aronson for a moment, because according to John Champion or Tyler or Taylor Twoman, I can't remember which one reported it, and I can't believe I just called a Taylor a Tyler. I feel very bad about that. <laughs> you betrayed uh, your it kind. Was, it was, I did. It was supposed to be Georgi Mihailovic, uh, but then due to his injury, he's not able to go, so Brendan Aronson starts. and. And that kind of like sets the wheels in motion for me of just experimentation in ways that weren't wholly different. It wasn't like Tyler Adams as a center back or Anthony Robinson as an outright left winger, although he kind of was. But it was experimentation that made sense. And you mentioned it earlier that it was Eunice Musa and Tyler Adams becoming a sort of deeper double pivot. But then yeah. with Aronson and Pulisic ahead, Pulisic doing things that we've seen where he starts on the sure. left wing and then moves inside and has a bit of rotation there. Uh, but, but it was just... Just those little differences in how they were doing it and what the overall intent of that was. Because Aronson at times is facilitating play and keeping the ball moving. But I also spotted him when he was in that advanced spot playing off of Jesus Ferreira, playing off of uh, Timo Wea, and just trying to create overloads and just create chaos. And I think that was also Christian Pulisic's mandate was roam around, find pockets of space, make things happen create chaos. And I think both of them did that individually. And then having the two of them within 10 to 15 yards of each other in the middle also really helps because now you've got them ahead of a midfield two who can play at forward. You've got a square box and you can move that ball really effectively there. But with Anthony Robinson pushed up all the way on the left wing, you still have width on both sides. and And so a lot of this was like, new wrinkles that, when you look at them a little bit deeper, aren't quite new wrinkles, sure. but are instead, like, semi-new wrinkles. I don't know if that's how wrinkles work, but for purposes of this analogy, <laughs> that's how they work. Yes, Taylor, yeah,
2: that's definitely how wrinkles work, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I, Taylor, I totally agree with everything you just said. It was not that different, but it was different. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think... Heading into a World Cup, less than six months away from the U.S.'s first game that we still don't know the opponent of, but it's going to be one of Ukraine or Wales. I'm sorry, Graham. Uh, I really am. It's going to be one of those two teams. We're so close to that game that I think this is the perfect time for Berhalter to be making uh, some, some minor changes, some some minor semi-wrinkles, whatever whatever terminology we're using here. Because, Taylor, think about... think, think about, new or semi-new is what I've gone with. New, new or semi-new. Or yeah. yeah, and now we have to say new or semi-new both uh, every single time. Of course. I, I think, think about being in November think about it, it being November and the U.S. is getting ready to play their second game of the group stage right so it's I think that might be the Black Friday game against England I don't remember for sure but let's just say it is I think it is. At, at this point knowing how injury prone the U.S. player pool is maybe the U.S. is already missing a couple players let's just use the players in this game as an example and say Dest is out and so you're, you're kind of missing your star on the right wing pushing forward and creating chances out wide and let's say Weston McKennie is not fully fit either at that point I think we're looking back to this game, Taylor, and maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I, I think we're I looking back on this game really and saying, man, it was a good idea to try this shape out. Was it yeah. drastically different than the, the 4 through 3 which kind of turns into a, a two center backs, the three midfielders, and the front five with the fullbacks bombing forward? Is it all that different from that? No, not really. But it allows you to cover for missing personnel in a different way. If Dest is out, Cannon is a fine option at at the right-back, right-center-back spot. And you wouldn't ask that of Dest, necessarily. If Weston McKinney is out and and you say, maybe I don't want to rock with De La Torre to start with, or maybe I don't want Musa and I want De La Torre instead. Either way, I'm down to number eight just go to that double pivot and maybe it's Acosta in there who was out with a little bit of a knock according to U.S. soccer for this game. I just think doing this thing, it's not drastically different. It's not reinventing the wheel. burr didn't even really do that much different than we've seen him do before, than what we've seen him do before. But it allows you to adapt to injury-filled situations and short rest in a different way. And that for me is really valuable, Taylor.
1: Agreed. Uh, Absolutely. And I would say, You're right that it's not drastically different from a U.S. perspective. It is still players doing things we've seen them do in various forms at various times. And maybe there's a little bit of difference here and there. But the thing that I think, Joe, you've already talked about, I've already mentioned, is the idea that at the same time, the U.S., in moments in moments previously, was a bit predictable. And you sort of knew Tyler Adams is going to be on the ball. He's going to be the single pivot. So he's either going to have to find those kind of uh, further advanced options or he'll have to drop it back to a center back. Like, you can start to predict things. And if you're an opponent watching this U.S. game, I think it, it just it gives you pause. You have to kind of rethink some things. You have to... Just make sure that you're not overcommitting to one approach, because as soon as you're setting up to pounce on Tyler Adams being that single pivot, and you're set up for all of that, and then you come out, and Tyler Adams has Eunice Musa right next to him, and they can kind of shuffle those lateral passes back and forth as they need to, you have to adjust. And I think giving the U.S. just little permutations, little differences, made a huge difference. And and I guess it kind of all culminates for me in doing little new things to create. A greater likelihood that we get to see things that we've seen previously that we really enjoy. Yeah. And, Joe, this is me teeing myself up to talk about the moose maneuver, <laughs> a, a, a term that I believe you coined or we coined together. We did. It, but yeah. I saw it twice. One time it doesn't go well. One time he gets dispossessed. Another time I think he carries it forward 40 or 50 yards and it ends with a, a good bit of possession and maybe a shot for the U.S. But both of them start with Tyler Adams on the ball. Yep. Morocco go to close him down. They have two midfielder step to him. Musa drops like maybe moves deeper 3 5 yards and that's all it takes for him to get the ball but now he has no one within 10 yards of him and he does that like as the ball is coming into him he he does the sweeping kind of first touch with his right foot and then he is away and away goes the Musa maneuver but now instead of it being with somebody hassling him or ha- him having to check in with a defender on his back he is basically receiving the ball with yards of space able to go directly at the Morocco goal, that felt very exciting to me. And for him to have Anthony Robinson already in an advanced position out wide, routinely wide open for that outlet pass if need be, that also felt a little bit different. So those little differences start to add up in a very exciting way. We're going to keep talking about some of those new or semi-new wrinkles, Joe, in just a moment. First, we're going to take one quick break so I can catch my breath, reduce some of the enthusiasm for this performance, because we should probably keep it grounded in reality. Back soon to do that. All right, Joe Lowry, we are back. We are still talking about new or semi-new wrinkles. Uh, what else did you see from the United States that you liked in terms of experimentation? So right before we went to break, Taylor, you mentioned Yunus Musa. I want
2: to stick in midfield, sort of, and talk about his eight number eight partner, or maybe just in narrow right-sided mm-hmm. winger, half space guy. Either way, I want to talk about Brendan Aaronson. However, however you want to categorize his position. Getting Aronson on the field was, I think, a smart move for Baralter in this game. Not only did it allow the U.S. to get a different look at some different players in slightly different spots or in different combinations, but I think Aronson and Jesus Ferreira complement each other really well, Taylor. And I want to tell you why. So when we think about Jesus Ferreira as a nine, his whole thing, at least in possession in the middle third, is what? It's it's dropping back into midfield. It's coming to combine. And, and we actually didn't see a ton of that in this game in terms of Ferreira getting on the ball and influencing the play when he's in possession. But he did move plenty off the ball. We see him dropping in a little bit on the, the goal that Aaronson scores, where Ferreira is maybe a little deeper in the center circle or thereabouts, and Pulisic runs in behind. Pulisic did that some, some of that vertical movement, but Aronson did it more in this game. I think getting him on the field to to really counteract Ferreira's movement was kind of a fun theme, mini-theme of this game, semi-new theme, wrinkle thing of this game. <laughs> Aronson is a direct player. That's his whole brand, right? That was his brand at the Union. That was his brand with RB Salzburg. It will be his brand at Leeds United. And it's his brand with the national team, too. Aronson loves to break in behind and get into space, really as does Tim Wea, although I think Aronson's maybe a little more dedicated to it. In a game like this, when Ferreira is starting as your number nine and you know for a fact that he's going to be dropping into midfield, you need someone to get him behind. There's a reason why Berlter keeps talking about verticality in basically every press conference that he has. He wants to see players breaking behind, at least in part, to counteract Ferreira's movement and to stretch the opposition's backline to push them back to create space for Ferreira and for Musa and for whoever else is in that midfield area. Aronson did that stuff. In the 22nd minute, he attempts to make a run in behind, and he he does make the run, but nothing really comes of it in that sequence, at least not that I can recall. The 49th minute, he makes a run in behind. He was stretching the back line, stretching the field, and that's, that's a really good thing for this U.S. team. Tim Weah does that, too, and getting them on the right side together, I think, had some value. I actually... I don't know. I didn't think the spacing was really all that great between those two players. There were too many moments for me where they were either on the same line or they didn't know exactly where to be in relation to the other one. A little bit of that is to be expected because they hadn't done that job before. I don't think they'd ever played on the same side in that way with these specific instructions before. So I, I'm not saying that's a huge problem, but it is something I'll be watching for later on. But still, I liked Aronson's motivation to get him behind. I wish we'd seen a little bit more of that from Christian Polisic, but when in reality it was actually Polisic's run that got the U.S. on the board in the first place, I really can't
1: complain too much. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I want to stick with Jesus Ferreira and what he was doing, specifically in relation to when Haji Wright comes on. Joe, from from your uh, viewing, did you see them doing roughly the similar job, or did you see differences? Because I do remember Jesus Ferreira dropping in a lot. I also remember Haji Wright doing that, but then... The instances of Haji Wright trying to stretch that back line or trying to make those direct runs in behind, uh, there's the one that he kind of takes a heavy touch wide, then miscontrols, but it's the, I think it leads to the penalty. It's the penalty yeah. uh, incident. But that is him making that direct run, staying onside and getting that ball. And so I saw Haji Wright doing... I guess a bit of both there, but I feel like Jesus Ferreira probably did that as well because I remember him being very frustrated when he didn't get some of those through balls <laughs> and he was making his direct runs. So, overall, would you say it was a similar performance between those two or did you see differences?
2: It's it's interesting, Taylor. I think they actually are. Okay, I hesitate to say this. They are similar in a lot of ways. I, I know was you say mean. they're relatively similar players, they're not identical, and, and Ferreira is. Much more of a number 10 than Haji Wright is a number 10, if that makes sense. Ferreira is a a bigger threat to drop in, like to really drop in, not just to to drop maybe three to five yards and hold up the ball. Haji Wright can do that stuff. Ferreira really drops in and and, and can sometimes be a full-on extra central midfielder. And maybe I I didn't watch closely enough in this game. Maybe I'll I'll go back through or watch Ferreira's actions. I don't recall him influencing the game in that way a ton throughout this match, but he did drop deep and he did kind of sag away from the opposing back line. Haji Wright did that stuff too, but to me it looked like it was more of a a last resort kind of thing. Like a moment, there's a moment where Wright, there's actually a couple, in maybe in the first 10 minutes where he comes on the field, where the U.S. is trying to build from the back and they eventually do, the 49th minute is the first one that I'm trying to think of, where he drops in a little bit just to hold up the ball and get the U.S. out of pressure. And then he goes and actually ends up with a shot at the end of that sequence that's saved. Wright can do some of those things, and he does love to turn and run in behind. And He's a little faster, and he's a bigger guy, so some of those runs look a little more purposeful relative to Ferreira. But actually, I just think this was a good game that shows the similarities and the distinct differences between Ferreira and Wright. I thought they both were solid in this game. I know Wright gets that penalty kick goal, Ferreira
1: doesn't get on the score sheet, but I thought they were both good in this game, Taylor. I agree with you, and, and I, I really liked a lot of what we saw from Jesus Ferreira, including chasing down... Relatively hopeless long balls that were sort of (laughs) clearances. But there's that line between like just running to run and running to hassle and to annoy. And I like that Jesus Ferreira is an aggressive runner. He's a smart runner. But he is also, for the opposition, an annoying runner. That he's going to just make you have to go 80% speed instead of 50% speed to collect a ball, or he's going to make you pass it back when you want to be able to turn and sort of restart that attack. I liked that running from him. I do wish he'd gotten on the score sheet, but I also, with all that said, won't be upset if Haji Wright starts the next game because he gets the goal. It's a penalty. I'm glad he scored it. I was very nervous. He took a very long time after the whistle blew, and I thought, that doesn't scream confidence, but it was a good finish. That's great. That's great. But what I I was really surprised by was how good his touch is, and that's the thing that I had missed in watching him. And maybe he just had a really good night, uh, but it did stand out to me that much. There's two specific minutes. There's the 68th minute, uh, Malik Tillman has come on. He plays a sort of, I don't know what I'm, kind of like, I don't know what I'm doing, but you're right there, so I'm just going to shuffle this pass to you. But he overhits it as Haji Wright is running towards him, checking two. And Haji Wright gets a foot out and controls it so that it continues on in his stride, but had no business controlling that. And I for sure thought it was going to be kind of like a heavy touch pops up in the air or goes 10 yards away from him, and now Morocco can counter. So he controls it really well there. But the even more impressive one in the 73rd minute, it's one of those where he is, I think, 30 yards from the U.S. goal uh, and has defenders all over him from Morocco. And he just keeps holding them off and holding them off maybe three different players before eventually he draws a foul. But the tight control while handling the physicality was not a thing that I had seen him do nearly as much in Turkey. And I would like to see what he can do with more of these starters from the jump. I still think Jesus Ferreira has done enough that I'm comfortable with him as our number nine for now. But I, I, I saw some flashes from Haji Wright that I hadn't seen previously that, again, made me very excited for this team.
2: Yep, Taylor, I'm right there with you. I think Haji Wright was very good. I don't think he was perfect. I, I know I mean, he had a I mean. lot of he had a lot of skillful touches in some of those hold up moments. He also had maybe a heavy touch or two right before a skillful touch. Yep. So it wasn't it wasn't a perfect game from him, but I thought he was good, Taylor, and yeah. I would not be opposed like you to seeing him start against Uruguay. I, I kind of think given the specific nature of of Uruguay's style of play, which is to be a little deeper and, and to defend. Yeah. Part of me thinks that Ferreira is a better fit for that game and that opponent, but just if if they were playing, if Theos is playing Team X tomorrow, I would have no issue with either one of those players starting. Which I think was your point. Overall, a, a good outing from both of those players, uh, and, and really in large part, a pretty solid outing for
1: this whole U.S. team. Unfortunately, I think they did both miss one-on-one opportunities. Jesus Ferreira has the one that I think Pulisic finds him through yep. a defender, and, and Ferreira is able to settle it, but the shot goes right at the goalkeeper, Haji Wright. I think the one you mentioned in the 49th minute yep. ends up getting that shot uh, one-on-one, but it's saved. So that's not great, but let's stick with that 49th minute uh, moment for a second, because this would be an example of a an old wrinkle, <laughs> but one that I've never seen done as effectively from the U.S. that I can recall was how skillfully they played out of the back. And that's where this chance comes from. Uh, it's the one that ends up being, like, the U.S. have, I think it's the 3v2 with numbers committed into the attack, and it's a very good moment. Haji Wright's shot is saved, as I said. But it starts because they take some risks, and they build out of the back, and they invite pressure, and they bypass that pressure, but then they go right back into it, and they keep pulling Morocco further and further forward. And then they're able to play through them, and then they counterattack. And routinely this evening, I saw the United States build out of the back with confidence and poise and strength, holding off challenges and then laying it off and then finding quick combinations. Uh, It it, it really, really made me happy because this is the same team that— Many years ago, maybe not many, but several years ago, when the U.S. is trounced 3-0 by Mexico, and they're trounced because they're trying to build out of the back, and they cannot do it, and they're suffocated by Mexico's press, and they turn the ball over constantly, I was really upset, as were many fans. And Berhalter in the press conference said, like, "I, I don't know what you're talking about. I saw a lot of good things tonight. And that seemed crazy at the time. It still seems a little crazy now. But to see how far they've come... You re- you have to recognize that that requires a devotion to we're doing this routinely. Even if the opponent is pressing us, we're going to stick with it because we've got to figure out how to navigate that. And this was the most successfully I've ever seen the U.S. under Berhalter, maybe ever, uh, play out of that pressure and find ways to attack. Yes, it's a friendly. Yes, it's Morocco. I'm still pretty psyched about it. I think that's fair, Taylor. I enjoyed the U.S.'s commitment to playing out of the back in this game. It's,
2: it's weird. That was a good sequence, but also it wasn't. I, I, I don't know. I need to go back through and watch this one or two more times. But for the vast majority, if I remember correctly, of that play, the spacing isn't great for the U.S. And it just yeah, takes true. them a little too long to get into things. And once they do, then they really start moving. And the key for me is Joe Scally on that left side. At the start of the sequence, he's too high. And I I don't know if that's expressly his fault. There could be a miscommunication there. Maybe he thinks that they're supposed to be building from a back three. And so he should be able to push up high on that left side because he'll have at that point, no, I guess it would have been Aaron Long regardless. So I'll have Aaron Long shaded to the left and Long did shade to the left, but it, it was a little disjointed. But all that to say I don't think it was perfect from the U.S. in this game building from the back, but I did appreciate the commitment to it. I did like them trying to exercise some patience in those moments and some control, which is something that Greg Baralters talked about and, and did talk about in the build-up to this game. So I enjoyed that. One of the things that that I kept thinking about in this one, and I don't know if it matters or not, and I don't want to bring up the whole John Brooks debate again because I think everybody's hmm. tired of talking about it and hearing about it. But one thing, Taylor, that I kind of found myself longing for in this game was a ball playing center back, right? So think about being in that back three. Part of the advantage in my mind of being in that shape, and, and we see this in build up a little bit, is it takes some of the pressure off of Tyler Adams to distribute. And I actually think Adams was really good on the ball in this game. He was more aggressive and assertive and clean in possession than I, I remember him seeing than I remember seeing from him in quite some time. But it it does take naturally, by adding another player deeper downfield, sometimes in the spaces that Adams would be, if the U.S. is playing in more of a normal back four slash back two in possession, it takes some of the responsibility off of Adams in possession. And I just kept longing for that. No pun intended for Aaron Long. Ah, Hmm. Oh, I cracked myself up. Okay. Um, I I kept longing for a a center back to take the game on and and to actually break some lines. And, And we saw some attempted line breakers from the U.S. back three. But I don't think Long or Zimmerman or even Cannon was all that good in possession. And it just kind of left me wanting a John Brooks type, if only we had someone exactly like John Brooks in every way in the pool that could do this job. It left me wanting a John Brooks type or even a Chris Richards type or or just Zimmerman or Long or Cannon to take ownership a little bit more and break lines. So that's just one little nitpicky thing. It, It didn't really end up mattering in this game. But I think if you have one or two players who can really break lines in that back three, then you're really starting to cook with some gas here. And the U.S. didn't have that in this game when they still scored three goals. But going forward, maybe that along with some of the possession spacing on that right side between the right winger, who was Weah, and, and sort of the right attacking midfielder, or narrow winger, who was and Those are kind of the top two things on my maybe-we-can-do-this-a-little-better-next-time-but-it's-still-not-the-end-of-the-world list.
1: An important clarification, Joe, uh, for people who are midway through writing their angry tweet, just hold on until we get clarification. Can you define what you mean by a line-breaking pass, and how is that different from a direct or sort of vertical ball over the top? Sure.
2: So I think of a line-breaking pass, and I guess technically it's not this, but I think of it as a ball on the ground that finds uh, either a midfielder or an attacker dropping in, Between the lines, so likely between the opposition's midfield and defensive line, really getting them on the ball. They can turn and play forward quickly. The ball is on the ground and it's a controlled pass as opposed to maybe a ball over the top, which is still controlled. And again, that's that's a good ball from Zimmerman over the top to Polisic, which I think is maybe what you're thinking of there, Taylor. That's a good ball. And there were a couple of other nice moments like that cannon play. How'd you write in behind? And that was a good sequence. It leads to the penalty, but maybe not exactly the type of controlled possession and building passes that, that I'd like to
1: see from that back three. I think that's fair. Uh, as, as nerdy as this conversation is i'm going to continue it so with a line breaker for you then is it more often that it's a it's a ball between those like if you've got two banks of four let's say it's a ball between those two banks that yeah. then makes them have to adjust it's not necessarily that like final through ball that triggers a breakaway I think it is both but I, I I would describe that through ball just simply as a through ball
2: where I would probably describe a line breaking pass as something that breaks that midfield line into an attacker who's standing between the midfield and defensive line for the opposition i think they they both break lines so i think they both satisfy that definition but i think of that as like i think of a line breaking pass as something that then gets you into position to play the through ball right into in for the shot
1: so there's a little bit of a difference there but i think it's a a little semantic stuff as well well we're going to continue with that because I, i share your concern that with no john brooks there doesn't seem to be a center back who is like truly comfortable making some of those passes i think walker zimmerman tries to do that in the lead up to the timothy Wea goal and gives the ball away but then it's immediately uh won back by the united states but even there it's him sort of going for a 30 40 yard ball out of the back that's cut out and you can see christian pulisic throw his hands up in frustration so i'm with you that it doesn't seem like anybody right now is stepping up to handle that responsibility my question then becomes do you think Burhalter? Is looking for someone to, in your opinion, I'm not asking you to be a mind reader, but like, do you think Berhalter is looking for someone to step up and be able to do that? Or is there a chance that he is looking at the talent pool and and saying, we don't really have anyone who can do that, certainly not in the time frame required. So instead, I'm going to make things easier for our midfielders to facilitate playing out of the back. And is there an argument that that's why we saw that sort of three, two, two, three shape at times was to get more number central to help facilitate playing out of the back?
2: Taylor, I'm so glad you asked that question about whether or not Beralta kind of looking for that. I I think, and, and this is probably where I should have taken my initial comment, I think this is a trade-off that Greg Beralta is willing to make. It seems okay. very clear to me based off of the personnel choices that he has made consistently throughout World Cup qualifying now heading into this game tonight. It seems that he is willing to sacrifice those line-breaking passes from his center backs in return for defensive solidity, right? So think about the, the two full-time center backs, the, the center backs that defended as center backs, and even Reggie Cannon we can toss in there. They're athletic guys. Zimmerman and Long are, are players who can win the ball in the air. They can recover and transition. They can high-press and step and, and pin you in. They do a lot of that stuff, and they do it very, very well. Beralter likes that, and I think this team has has transformed Pretty clearly, in my mind, from a team that is all about building from the back, thinking back to that Mexico game that you referenced, Taylor, where the U.S. gets blown out. They've transitioned from being a team that is all about building from the back, and instead of defending high up the field, they defended a mushy 4-4-2 block. That was 2019. I think now this team has changed, and Baralther has changed some of his desire for specific player profiles, and center back is one of those. As much as I would like to see some line-breaking passes, I don't think we have any real indication that it's something that Baralther cares about so
1: much. I appreciate you sticking with me for that conversation, Joe. But you mentioned Tyler Adams earlier. I've held off talking about Tyler Adams, America's (laughs) greatest ever soccer player, for about as long as I can. So we're going to take one more break, and then I have questions for you about Mr. Adams. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night.
0: You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
1: Welcome back. Joe Lowry, you never left, but you, I'm assuming, have been waiting with bated breath for my question about Tyler Adams. Oh, and yeah. it's this. I saw him do a lot of running. Like a lot of running, like tracking Amrabat all over the pitch, especially in that first half. Is that new? Because that felt like a new wrinkle. You've like <laughs> yeah. seen Tyler Adams like, shut people down, track them 1v1 for moments. But to see him the furthest forward of any central midfielder regularly in order to shut down that single pivot, that stood out to me as something we haven't really seen that much of under Greg Berhalter.
2: Taylor, I think the frequency of it really was new. But the idea is not... It's not mind-blowing, and it is something we've seen from the U.S. in the past. The idea being, Tyler Adams is the most central defender in the midfield three. And the U.S. did defend with the midfield three. I want to make that clear. The possession shape was different. It was more of a midfield two. But in in defense, it was that 4-3-3. Three, three. So Tyler Adams is the number six. He's central. Aronson's to his right. Musa is to his left. Over and over again in this game, we saw the exact sequence that you just described with Tyler Adams stepping forward to Morocco's number six. And it, it kind of makes sense as to why he's the one that was tasked with doing that in this game. He's he's in the middle, and so is Morocco's number six, right? So is Amrabat. So he can step forward and deal with that. He has the straightest path to that, or at least like the, the most vertical, linear path to, to that player and to that defensive rotation. I think it it worked for most of this game. There's a sequence... I think it's in the 57th minute. I'm trying to scroll through my notes to find it. Yep, the 57th minute where Adams steps forward and you see a little bit of the risk that comes with him leaving that that six spot to protect the back line. You see the risk of him leaving that responsibility and instead transitioning basically to being a pressing number 10. He just gets beaten. And that doesn't happen with Tyler Adams very much, but he... He doesn't necessarily over-pursue. He just enters a 50-50 and loses the 50-50. And at that point, Morocco transitioned forward very quickly and break into the space. And I believe they then break down the left wing as the U.S. has kind of had to scramble a little bit. So you could see the the hazard, the, the, the risks mm-hmm. associated with that. But, Taylor, I think you're right. It's new. I didn't love it, to be totally honest. We've seen Adams do that stuff occasionally before. I don't know if that was a tactical instruction or if it was just him ad-libbing. I kind of think it was deliberate from Greg Berlter. I I don't know that that was the best way to defend Morocco, and I, I don't know if we'll see it again. But Taylor, I think it was, at least in terms of frequency, a new thing.
1: I liked it. 80% 80% of the time, I would say. There were, there were definitely moments when if Morocco were a little bit more alive to the situation or if we're playing an even better team, I think they would have spotted, oh, Amrabat has actually 10 yards as Tyler Adams is trying to close him down. So I'm going to play it into him and he'll be able to turn and move it forward. But now Tyler Adams is aggressively sprinting and maybe removed from the play. So I think there were would have been opportunities. Joe, are you a poker player by chance? I'm I'm not, but I have played okay. a little bit just for fun. That, okay, that's about where I am, and I do think like if you start to win, if you start to catch some cards, you build that confidence, the stat gets bigger. There are those moments when you're like queen six off suited, why not? Let's see what happens <laughs> like you'll start to play things you normally wouldn't and i and I do think. Once the U.S. gets a goal, then a second goal, there there was a little bit more of a swashbuckling approach at times of like, yeah, we'll try this and see what happens. And maybe that's because it's a friendly. Maybe that's because they're winning. But I hope it's because they're building confidence and they're building chemistry and they're sort of learning how to play together. Because in times past, we've seen the U.S. in order to do the defensive things they need to do or have the shape or the approach they first would have to, like, track back and reset and get everybody in the right shape, and now we can play defense. And turns out, the the opposition doesn't always wait for you to get perfectly into your defensive shape. They tend to like to exploit it when you don't have that. And so for the United States to be able to go from a 4-3-3 to a 3-2-5, then back to a 4-3-3 defensively, but also still be able to press on occasion to sort of improvise defense and react to situations as needed, I think there were still some areas to be desired, but overall, I thought thought that fluidity in transition to defense yeah. was a notable
2: positive. Yep, I, I totally agree, Taylor. It's difficult to do, and it's not something this U.S. team have, has done a lot before. I mentioned this earlier. I can't think of a game ever where the U.S., under Greg Beralta, I should specify, has gone from uh, a 4 through 3 in defense into a back three in possession and then and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. I don't remember seeing that before, and these players maybe have done bits and pieces of it before. Juventus does this all the time. This is a huge thing that they do. They don't always go into a 4-3-3 defensively, but they love to oscillate between a back three and a back four in possession and in defense in that order. So players have done this stuff before. Weston McKinney comes on and he's playing kind of in that right, that right half space, the Brendan Aronson spot, maybe tucking a little deeper. He knows how to do that stuff. He understands the rotations. The players at this point should understand that stuff, but I was impressed generally with how the U.S looked comfortable going back and forth. One other thing, Taylor, we talked about the press a little bit and the shape at least. One other thing I want to mention, this is something I'd like to see improved down the line is... I think Morocco had a little too much ease breaking out of the U.S.'s press with their wingbacks. It happened just a couple times For in the first half. sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. it happened a couple times in the first half, but I think it happened a couple times too many in the first half. There's a moment in the 19th minute where Morocco really just used their wingbacks to step up yeah. and progress. And in the U.S. don't pin Morocco to one side in the way that I think they should. There's another moment in the 12th minute. It's Morocco on their right side, the U.S.'s left side. And it's a, a simple long switch over to the left side. The U.S. the, the US is right. The, the United States just can't quite get pressure to the ball, and they're not organized to the point where they can really pin Morocco to one side. And then the U.S. are scrambling. Reggie Cannon gets pulled out a little bit. I think it's a ball between him and Walker Zimmerman. And a couple seconds later, and the U.S. have a shot. And then a, Sorry, not the U.S. Morocco has a shot. And then a few seconds after that, it's another shot from close range that Aaron Long has to hustle over to block those moments happened a little too often in this game, and, and some pressing breakdowns happened a little too often. Yeah. I think some of that's understandable. The, the shape that Morocco used is not one that maybe the U.S. has gone up against a ton, but they have gone up against it. Qatar plays a very similar shape. We saw that in the Gold Cup. Canada does some of this stuff sometimes. I think the, the pressing wasn't quite as clean as Baralther would want. It wasn't like end-of-the-world kind of stuff, but as far as things to watch for the rest of the window... I think pressing, even though the U.S. might not have a ton of chances to really do it given who they're playing, pressing is something to keep an eye
1: on. I I absolutely agree because I think... Some of that was basically the United States trying to press, and the idea being that if you put the opponent under pressure, they're not able to kind of pick their head up and find the passes they want. Ultimately, they're going to hoof it long or put it out of bounds or get dispossessed. But the number one thing you don't want them to do is hit a big switch, and you don't want to give them the time to do that because if you have all your numbers, Joe, I know you know this, but for folks who are uh, new or catching up, Basically, if you've got all your numbers there pressing, that big switch not only puts the opposition into acres of space, it also means that no one is around them. And and I think we saw that, uh, as you mentioned, a couple times in the first half, even later on in the second half. We'll talk more about a specific incident later on when we debate Cameron Carter Vickers and him being the savior of the U.S. men's <laughs> national team versus Joe hating him. Uh, but when you're able to hit that switch, now if you've got everybody on one side, you have to hustle to make some sort of defensive play. And I agree that a little bit more consistency or just a unified approach to the press is going to help with that. But look at the Champions League final. Liverpool are a team that drill in the press every single day, play it every single game. And yet Madrid's major tactic for large chunks of that game was... Play on one side, big switch to Rodrigo or Vinny Jr., and then see what happens. Uh, Vinny Jr. usually in the Champions League final. Because if you can hit that big switch, you've got them overloaded on one side, and now you can counter. And so that's always going to be a way to nullify the press. So you want to stop them from having the ease of hitting that switch or stop them to the extent you can. But then you have to be able to deal with that switch when it's on. And that was the major kind of stalling point, I think, on the evening uh, Twelman Dwellman said it was Zimmerman not releasing Reggie Cannon, and that may well be true. It may be that Cannon should just go do that automatically, or maybe there was somebody else supposed to slide over because I do think I saw Eunice Musa hustling to try to get to, uh, to Messina. So I'm not sure which one it's supposed to be, but I hope the U.S. sticks with this approach, sticks with this defensive game plan, because I want to see them fine-tune that. I want to see them nullify that big switch. Even if it gets across, I want to see them know Who needs to go over to slow down that counter so everyone can get back into a position they need to be in so then you can aggressively press again? Yep, I'm right there with you, Taylor. I think the
2: U.S. needs to drill down those defensive rotations a little bit because try as you might, you're you're always going to get beaten in your press. Mm -hmm. So we can almost separate this into two pieces. The first piece is trying to press and go and win the ball. And the U.S., to their credit, did that plenty in this game. From the opening whistle, Taylor, you mentioned Hakimi getting dispossessed and the U.S. pressing and being aggressive and creating legitimate chances from that. That was great, and we did see that throughout this game. But the first part of this is, is going to press and win the ball. So when that doesn't happen, and there'll be times when it doesn't, the second piece of this whole thing is how do you react? And I think maybe in, in this game, there were errors in both of those pieces. Errors in going to close down the ball and some of the pressing angles and the early rotations to pin Morocco. And then the second part being maybe Zimmerman and Reggie Canna not quite nailing that, uh, that communication in those rotations there, in their timing on that side. I don't know that that was like the biggest issue facing the U.S. in this game, but I do think it'll be interesting to monitor going forward. How do they react? How do they shift? This is a a pretty uh, – it's been something – this shape and these rotations have been something we've seen from the U.S. before, and I think it would serve them well to really iron it out and get pretty darn perfect Mm -hmm. at it before the World Cup.
1: You said it wasn't like the biggest issue, the most pressing issue. Uh, I agree. And I would extend that to, was there like a right, yes, major issue? Exactly. Or are we basically ultimately coming down on, this was a good performance, but with every good performance, there's still going to be some things that can yep. be improved upon or need to be addressed. And that's about where we are, right? That this was a good win, a good result, a quality win at that, but always going to be some things to be fine-tuned. And I wouldn't say that's as far as nitpicking. I would say it's fine-tuning, which is I guess a notable difference in my mind and maybe only my mind. I think I think you might just be your mind. <laughs> um, yes, Taylor, I,
2: I am I'm with you 100%. I don't think there were any glaring issues for the U.S. in this game. I mentioned the the positioning and the spacing on the right side. I mentioned maybe Pulisic making a few more runs in behind. I talked about the center backs and, and wanting them to be a little more precise in their passing, but I'm not sure we're really ever going to see that at this point. And then the press and, and Tyler Adams maybe not being quite as aggressive. That's what four or five things. They're all pretty minor things this was this is a weird game and friendlies kind of get this weird cadence in the second half Taylor I, I think you'd probably agree with this when you get so many different players on the field by the end of this game there's more players who were on the bench to start this game than there were players who started the game on the field for the United States men's national team you get so many changes that yes, the shape didn't really change for the U.S. all that much to my eye from the first half to the second half, from the beginning of the second half to the 80th minute or whatever it is. It stayed pretty similar, but when so many different players enter the fold, things are going to be different. I talked about Joe Scalley and, and maybe him being a little too high. Maybe Jedi would have been in a better spot. Maybe, uh, maybe Malik Tillman on that left side would have been a little more aggressive. There's so many things that kind of got... Uh, that became a little more dull in the second half. That got duller in the second half relative to the first. But I don't think that's a, a major issue either. It feels to me like just sort of a consequence of the game and the context surrounding this game.
1: Joe, I want to stick with uh, Joe Scally. Your namesake or is he? are you his namesake? I forget how.
2: Uh, I think he's my namesake. No, okay. no.
1: Which, I'm older. I'm older. I am the original Joe. There we go. So his parents knew. Joe Lowry is going to be a hell of an analyst. Right. Let's name our <laughs> That's exactly him. what it was for the scouts. Uh, yes. And speaking of your analysis, <laughs> I'm sure it was. Um, uh, if people haven't heard them, what uh, you, myself, and Graham Ruffin uh, have been doing with our Americans in Action shows of late is breaking down the pool, the individual players, five to six players a show, and we kind of go in-depth on watching footage of them uh, to see what they're strong on, what they need to improve on. Here is what uh, my notes were for Joe Scalley I'm just saying this because I feel like this is more or less a pretty good encapsulation, encapsulation whew, of his performance this evening. Um, he is fairly press-resistant because he's okay with both feet. He's very young, but getting reps that help build confidence. The defensive side of his game is solid, especially 1v1 defending, unless, dot, 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 as we move to the what is he bad at, he does not have elite speed and can be beaten when he steps. Uh, he looks for le- he looks less comfortable playing on his left foot, and he's just an incomplete player overall, uh, which means that there's like certain things that could be better, but overall it's just he needs more reps and more time, that felt like a pretty accurate description for what we saw from Joe Scally tonight. He gets beat twice, one v ones, both of them because he doesn't have the speed. But both times he uses his physicality. One time he just steps across and wins the ball. The other, I think Atrafakimi takes a heavy touch. But yeah. even there, he pursues, he wins it back, and then away we go. So I liked that effort from him. I. Didn't like some of the rawness to his game that we saw, but I guess that's to be expected. So I had Joe Scally as one of my players who didn't quite impress. I wouldn't say he necessarily elevated his stock. He concedes that penalty, but that seems Dubious so harsh. To maybe. Yeah. yeah <laughs> just a tiny bit of contact, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Um, but I think I, so I wouldn't knock him for that one. So I think overall it's an okay performance, but didn't necessarily raise him that much in my estimation
2: retweet totally retweet cool. that yeah i mean scally performed like he has been performing for gladback for right. the for the second half of the season really he looked fine he wasn't all that involved in possession it's a little more difficult with him being on that far side based on where the broadcast camera is but even then i don't think he was really active or a game changer in possession and he was okay defensively he usually made up for his lack of speed I don't think that was a penalty at all to be honest with you Taylor so I'm not dinging him for that necessarily so yeah just kind of a a fine performance Mm -hmm. from It didn't move the needle I would still be curious to see more of him in this camp simply because I don't think he he really trashed his stock or anything like that in
1: this game I don't think anybody really did that in this game it's still pretty early on in this window so it was a a pretty consistent performance from Joe Scally, in that it was what we kind of expected and I would say Harshly, maybe, the same of Christian Pulisic, though I mean that in more of a positive way, that we've seen him be next level for the U.S., and I think we saw that in moments this evening. That first goal, goodness gracious. Oh, my gosh. The first touch, the settle over the top, I mean, that would be difficult to like pull down if you're a wide receiver. To control it with your feet the way he does and then finish while he gets... It's a credit to uh, Ma'i, the center back, that he does exactly what you train to do as a center back, which is you put... That little shoulder-to-shoulder, maybe slightly behind, uh, into the the player as they're getting ready to shoot or as they are shooting. And it's just going to put them off. And Pulisic rides that challenge and then still hits the ball the way he wants to. I thought that was incredible, that control and finish. But also, if you go back and watch, he makes that run. But Zimmerman is not ready to hit that long ball over the top to trigger that 1v1. And he just slows down. He goes from like I don't know fourth gear to first gear. He goes from a hundred percent run to forty percent, and that little half second where he slows up and then reaccelerates is what makes the difference. It's what keeps him on side. So I really liked his awareness, his positional awareness, his spatial awareness, but then his ability to control that ball, his ability to finish not too bad, draws the penalty uh, involved in the second goal as well, I believe, yeah, because he carries the ball forward 50 yards. No small feat there either. And yet there was also times when I felt like we saw some of the things that have frustrated us from Christian Pulisic in the past, holding the ball too long, trying to do just a little bit too much, drawing fouls and drawing contact, but doing so when he had a player to his right or to his left who was wide open, could have gotten that ball, could have had a shooting opportunity. So I would say it's still a very strong performance from Christian Pulisic, but I wouldn't say it was perfect by any stretch of the imagination.
2: That touch skews my evaluation so far to the, oh, my word, he is so good end of things. But Taylor, I think you make a good point, and it's something I referenced earlier. I just want to see him making more of those direct runs in behind. I I can't help but feel like when he comes back to get on the ball, which he does all the time, that he slows the U.S.'s possession down. It's not like he's dropping deep to get on the ball, then he faces up and actually drives the ball forward and weaves through a bunch of players. That's really hard to do. And Christian Pulisic's probably not good enough to do that. I think Leo Messi might be the only one who's really good enough to do that in the world on any sort of consistent basis. So I don't blame him for not going God mode and weaving through everyone. But maybe I think there is a little bit of blame on the fact that he keeps dropping and keeps... Congesting the midfield and slowing things down. It's not mm-hmm. dropping it in and I'm going to overload this space and quickly combine kind of way. It's I just want touches and I'm hoping something's yep. going to happen. And and that for me is not the best use of his talent. The best use of his talent or one of the best is that vertical movement and he is so good at it. I want to see it more because I think that can change games for the U.S. Men's National Team. Getting him on one side and whoever is playing on the other wing or in the right half space and on the right wing, if you just get Pulisic moving in behind a little bit more. I think you're, you're genuinely doing something out there, and I think it's a really simple recipe to have Ferreira dropping in a little bit if he's starting up top and have players running off him and have direct play over the top because that is something the U.S. will do and has done. And they can be really good at it. They just need that last piece, and Polisic, man, he can be that last piece if he'll just make a few more of those kinds of runs.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think he can't even do that. He can't make that difference with the ball at his feet. Yes, of course. Because, as I said, that second goal, it's the U.S. with a lot of good possession around the back, moving from left to right, right to left. And then I think it eventually gets played laterally to Pulisic, as I said. He carries it 50 yards and then lays it wide to Anthony Robinson. Just don't drop every time. That's, Exa- you know, yeah. that's the balance, right? Exactly. But then also he makes the run. Attacks the space and then lays the ball off and then moves to open up more space. What I, I feel like we see more often from him, and I think this speaks to what you were talking about, is maybe he'll make that 50-yard run. But along the way, he slows down to take somebody on or he cuts inside and then cuts back outside and then cuts inside again. And it almost looks to me uh, at times, there's one uh, in the fourth minute. It's the one where his shot is, I think, deflected wide. It's not saved. It's just uh, deflects wide. It's a good shooting opportunity, and he does well. He does the Cruyff turn and then shoots. But he has, I think, Brendan Aronson, maybe five yards or so to his right, who has his hands up wide open, and and maybe not quite wide open in that he has a defender like near him within a couple of yards. But when you were talking about inside the 18, that's plenty of space. But the more damning one would be that Maybe Aronson has a guy on him, but Timothy Weah did not. And if you play that ball to Aronson, he's either going to dummy it or one-touch it into the path of Tim Weah, who is now in on goal one-on-one. And Pulisic, I feel like, sees that opportunity, but overthinks it or maybe decides, that's too obvious, I'm going to cut back. And he does that later on when he plays that ball to Ferreira. Ferreira ends up missing the 1v1. I would say it's a somewhat fortunate ball that he plays it through traffic, and I think it sort of unintentionally megs a player and deflects to Ferreira. He collects it, and then he shoots. But that was another situation, which he had two overlapping runners. He could have played in either one, and that would have been a first-time shot. Who knows what happens with it? But... Sometimes I think he gets in his head. He overcomplicates things when he when he doesn't need to, and that doesn't always work out well. And it certainly doesn't work out well when you overcomplicate your post-match comments and criticize the fan base for not spending over $100 on tickets uh, on a on a weeknight to go see a friendly. But the less said about that, the oh, better. I, didn't uh, see that. I don't want to be too harsh on Christian Pulisic though, I think I have done just that because really that first touch is next level and it oh is a my, reminder yeah. of like when he when he's on his game, he is a world class player for sure. Yeah, and th- this game was kind of a fun reminder of the quality that the US
2: has. It was a fun yep. game, right? Like not a ton of stakes attached to it. I-, I know people still would have been burning things down if the US didn't win, but rational mm-hmm. minds would eventually prevail in that situation. It was just it was fun to see the US oh, score goals and to see a lot of really good players on the field together to get Polisic and Weya and Aronson and Musa and Adams and Ferreira to get that talent on the field and know that you still have Weston McKennie coming off the bench and working his way back to full fitness, and Serginho Dest, who's not fit, but hopefully he'll be back at some point. Chris Richards maybe getting back involved with this team in September, right before the World Cup, and maybe he plays his way onto that roster. And most important of all, in my opinion, of anyone, maybe in the U.S. pool, outside of Tyler Adams potentially, is Gio Reyna. Man, he is, mm. he is working his way back. He's training, I believe, in Austin right now. I think I saw on Twitter. He's working his way back. It was just a fun reminder and a hopeful reminder for me of how much talent this team has. And when it's all coming together against a team that will, well, not even all coming together, but when you're seeing it against a team that's a little more open and the U.S. is stringing some good sequence to get, sequences together with and without the ball, it was just fun, Taylor. And I think that's yep. my overall thought on this game. It was, just, it was fun to watch.
1: Yeah, man. I think I agree entirely, and I think a lot of that has to do with watching Scotland lose to Ukraine, which is great for Ukraine, and it's a wonderful story, and it genuinely does make me happy, it just simultaneously makes me sad for our colleague Graham Ruffin, but it was a very real-world reminder that we could not be going to a World Cup, and we are, so this is a friendly, it doesn't matter, and I really did write in my notes, like, I don't care what happens, we're still going to the World Cup, so this is sort of playing with house money, maybe that informs why I'm uh, pretty, pretty happy about this game, though I think the game itself made me pretty pleased. Uh, none more so than when Timothy Weiss scores a screamer. It is a bit of a knuckler. It maybe should have been saved. E- I don't care. Yeah. I think it's .03xg, <laughs> which, yeah. Joe, I am told, means it probably should not have been a goal. But it still is, and it still shows the confidence to hit from distance to make something happen. I like that he didn't overcomplicate it and try to take two people on. He just backs himself, puts it on frame, and made things happen, and that's exactly what happened.
2: I just want Tim Weah and Daryl DK to do a, a, like a shot off and to see who can hit the <laughs> ball harder because I've never seen Tim Weah hit the ball that hard before. It looked like Daryl Dike hit the ball. And so that just makes me wonder who shoots the ball faster. The people want to know it was, it was a fun goal from the way I, yeah. I, lean towards the side of saying, yeah, it should have probably been saved. I know goalkeeping is hard. And so I, I'm not like fully yeah. blaming the goalkeeper for that, but Probably should do a little bit better there. Either way, what a hit from Tim Waya. That ball was hot coming in to that yeah. goalkeeper.
1: You can uh, it's, you can see from that reverse angle, because I'm with you. At first, I thought that it, that's just a howler. That's terrible. Uh, but Bunu, I think, gets his feet set. He starts to dive. And genuinely, as he's pushing off, if you watch the ball, it knuckles right when he pushes. Yeah. And that's why I think he initially is going to get both hands behind it. If not catch it, he's certainly going to parry it away, but I think he's probably shaping to catch that one. And then because of that knuckle, he ends up only getting it with his left hand that I think he only gets it with the fingers on his left hand, which bend back, you assume that would hurt, but that's why I think he's not able to keep it out. Still a fortunate moment for Tim Weah, but two things in the build up to this one that I thought made it that much better of a goal for Tim Weah. The first would be, as I said, a lot of it is them building out of the back. The U.S. has... It's uh, I I did some counting. They have eight passes before Zimmerman attempts that like thirty yard, forty yard diagonal ball that gets cut out. But the U.S. wins it right back, and then it's uh, nine passes from there. Then they end up scoring. So I'm counting that as I think sixteen or seventeen total passes. Uh, but in that build up, there is a pass that I have seen the U.S. play before, and. Eight times out of ten, it ends up either with them being dispossessed or turning it over for a corner. But it's from, I think it's Reggie Cannon, plays a semi hospital pass down the line for Tim Weah, who's checking back towards the ball and has a defender on his back. And so often that is either an immediate back pass to Reggie Cannon, who then is already under pressure, or it's dispossessed or it's a touch out of bounds. And Weah, Like, bodies up, doesn't let the defender get to it, settles the ball, carries it back, carries it back, and then I think plays a lateral pass to Zimmerman, and that's when Zim hits that ball. But it was really good work to drop in to get the ball, to hold it up, to find a pass, and then recycle his run. And another minor moment of this one is that before Wea uh, shoots, he gets the ball and has a first time pass backwards to Reggie Cannon. And I am fully believing that that is a Greg Burhalter instruction for this team, uh, is don't be too slow. Don't dawdle on the ball. Don't overcomplicate. Keep it moving. Make Morocco get stretched out and then find your chances. And so the ball goes into Wea. He kind of awkwardly has to play it back behind himself to Reggie Cannon. And then once he's done that, his back is to goal. Wea checks his shoulders and realizes, "Oh, no one has moved to close me down. I am still wide open. Give me the ball back, Reggie Cannon." Reggie Cannon does just that, and at that point, I think it's uh, Unawi or Nawi uh, does try to close him down. Wea sees him coming and turns the opposite direction. So now he's taken the defender out of the equation. Other people have to close him down, but before they can do that, he gets that shot off. And I like the. The kind of juxtaposition of that quick one-touch pass to keep the ball moving, then the recognition of, I've got time, I'm going to turn, I'm going to take the shot, I'm going to make something happen. He does all of those things. So another really good performance from Tim Weah, who for a little bit was quiet and then suddenly goal, he real good.
2: Yeah, I, I love Tim Weah, Taylor. I don't think this was his strongest game overall, but for yeah, the fair. little the little moments that you and and for the... The quick feet that he has on that right side and how he helps the U.S. occasionally build out of pressure and all the little things he does, even though I don't think he was all that bright consistently in this game, he's still like very much up there with the U.S.'s top attackers for me, and, and it's certainly one of the U.S.'s most important players. I don't think anything changed for Tim Weah, just like I don't think anything changed for most of the U.S. players in this game. Maybe that's a little different for some of the guys who came on in the second half. But overall, I loved me some Tim
1: Weah yesterday, and I still love me some Tim Weah today. Joe, do you know why I'm uh, aggressively sighing at you? I, I don't, but I'd like to because more. you said I don't think things changed for most of the players in the team and I <laughs> feel like that was a veiled shot at our man Cameron Carter Vickers why are you trying to make Graham Ruffin sad Scotland eliminated from the World Cup and now you're trying to say that Cameron Carter Vickers is a terrible player and shouldn't be with the US national team Joe why are you saying that
2: Graham has suffered enough Taylor Graham <laughs> has suffered enough this is on me okay so I know I know you're being tongue-in-cheek with this I, I'm getting so. like a few tweets as well about man you're hating on Cameron Carter Vickers and it all stems from that article we referenced earlier that I wrote for Backfield and it, it, it published it full-time And I, I, the section was just kind of who struggled in this game. And I said, Cameron Carter Vickers got toasted on a cross in the 53rd minute. His defensive awareness is a concern, dot, dot, dot. Then I pick it up later. Really, though, I think CCV might be the one guy who hurt his stock a little bit in this one. I wouldn't count him out, but I don't think he sees his opportunity either. You'd think I'd like just Joe. massacred Cameron Carter-Vickers by, by the way Cameron that Carter people Vicks. are tweeting yeah. at me. Mm-hmm. But in reality, all I said was, yeah, he got burned on a cross, which is true. Like I really believe that in the 53rd minute. He just loses his man and allows a free header. And, and all I said was he, got, he lost a little bit of a battle on that cross and just didn't look exceptional in this game he didn't seize his opportunity and have us all saying man he needs to start in this next game Taylor do you do you think that like do you think Cameron Carter Vickers performed well enough to the fact that like Peralta should absolutely be starting him against uh, against Uruguay because I I don't I just don't think
1: that I guess um I, I, where I had him honestly was in that sort of he didn't stand out in a truly positive or truly negative way, which I tend to count as a net positive when it comes to a defender. I hadn't noticed that moment uh, that you mentioned, uh, but when I read your article, I went back and watched it. Joe, do you know who plays that cross in? It it comes from the left side from Morocco. I don't remember who plays it in. You do, because it's the same guy who was the problem the entire game. It's Messina, and, uh. and that's where... That was, I think, the saving grace for me because I'm with you that if it's just a, a cross from the left side, Cameron Carter-Vickers switches off and doesn't sit track his runner and now his runner's got a wide open header. That's kind of what I thought it was, Uh, and then I went back and watched, and it's pretty much the issue that we were talking about previously with Reggie Cannon and with the U.S. being vulnerable to that big switch. In this case, it is that big switch from the right side to the left side from Messina, who's now very much wide open. Reggie Cannon has to go try to cover him and close him down, but can't make up that distance, so Messina is able to pick his head up, play that ball in, and Cameron Carter-Vickers is tracking the run when it's played. I think it's uh, Sudali who's making the run, and and basically he gets frozen because the cross is being delivered, then the runner makes, like, kind of pivots to the back post. CCV, I think, thinks, I can win this header, I can make a play, and doesn't win the header. And so it looks really bad. I'm not saying that you're wrong there, uh, but I think it was representative of that larger problem we've been talking about. And so I didn't slam Zimmerman when like, he didn't release Reggie Cannon, or I didn't slam Reggie sure. Cannon when he didn't shut that down. So I think it's sort of part and parcel of the larger issue we've been talking about. I think overall, I saw from Cameron Carter Vickers exactly what we thought we would probably see, which is okay with his feet. He has definitely improved. He used his right and his left foot. But as you said correctly... It wasn't line-breaking passes. It wasn't even really direct balls over the top. We did see one from uh, uh, Walker Zimmerman, and we loved it. Uh, But I thought it was CCV winning everything in the air, being a very physical defender, not letting anybody turn, and doing the Zimmerman aggressive track and step on on occasion when it was appropriate. So I thought overall a more positive game maybe than you thought, but I don't think it was – to the level of he's definitely starting, though he may well, because Aaron Long seemed to pick up a little bit of a knock. And I thought he also had a fine game, but I think there were moments, especially in possession, he has one where he gets robbed, but then also fouled and the foul is given. And that was probably the correct decision, but there are other times when that doesn't get called and then the attacker is in on goal. And so I had a few shaky moments for Aaron Long in my notes. I didn't have as many for Walker Zimmerman. The one that stood out for me for Walker Zimmerman is when the U.S. gives up a free kick, I think, late in the first half. And um, and they're setting up the wall, and you can see Aaron Long talking to the official and just having a little bit of words here and there and being very like, what are you talking about? I didn't do anything. And Zimmerman is just sort of completely flat-faced and looks like kind of side looks at long and just grabs him by the arm and pulls him to where he needs to be (laughs) in the wall and you can see long be like oh right 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 sorry my bad and i just like the like the dead focus from walker zimmerman uh i think he is very much certainly our starting center back i still have questions about who his partner should be Uh, i hope we see a little bit more experimentation and somebody really rise to the occasion uh, to solidify that spot
2: So Taylor, we've gone through most of the players.
1: I'm going to do rapid fire on on the ones that I feel like we haven't talked about. And then if you have anything
2: else to say, please add it. I think we talked about pretty much all of the outfield starters. So Mm -hmm. I want to do a beat on Matt Turner he was good i i don't think he really you made
1: turner, any mistakes i, I know it it's a, a huge it shock
2: i know it's a massive shock so turner's starting in this <laughs> game because zach stefan okay. had well at least partially because zach stefan had to withdraw from this camp and this roster due to family reasons and we don't really know what's going on there but turner gets the start and he makes a number of pretty influential saves in this game paul carr had uh, had morocco's on target expected goal so basically instead of being an xg value based on where the shot is taken it's an xg value based on where the shot is hit on frame and so so he had that xg value at 1.4 so you can think about that as matt turner saving the u.s you know sort of like a a little more than a goal in a game like this he was good you don't need the numbers to tell you that but i do think that's an interesting way to supplement the, the eye test in this game Turner was good. So that's my rapid fire on Turner. I want to see more. I think he should be the number one. Nothing changes. Matt Turner's good at soccer. We can leave that one be. The other, I have to jump
1: in really quickly. <laughs> Please, There's no real except because I agree with you. <laughs> I just want to spotlight. Uh, he won't get any credit for the missed penalty because it's slammed off the crossbar. And he dove not the wrong way since it's pretty much center of the goal, but he dives to his left. I just wanted to pause for a moment to give him credit for immediately popping back up. Gotta love the core strength of goalkeepers. And because he dove left, he has to get over to the right-hand side, and he does that through traffic. He gets a hand of the ball, he kind of swats it, mostly clear, and then there's a scrum, and then there's a foul, and the U.S. get possession back. But... He, if he's not immediately up and pursuing that one, if he celebrates or just takes a second to gauge where things are or trusts his defenders to make a play, there's no guarantee they're going to win that. There's no guarantee that it won't be flicked onto somebody who then gets a, an open volley and just smashes it in. I love that he goes for that in traffic and gets even just a hand to it. That stood out to me in a very positive way as Matt Turner just reacting in a way that you want your goalkeeper to, to a penalty. And then I thought his distribution was fine, especially throwing. He doesn't quite have the Tim Howard howitzer that can like, cross midfield with a throw, but he triggered a few different counterattacks with some tosses. So uh, again, I thought a solid performance from Matt Turner.
2: So Matt Turner played well. I'd like to see more of him. I think we will in this window. Luca de la Torre comes off the bench and was Luca de la Torre. I think yep. he pushed the game forward. He was quick on the ball. I really liked him. I wouldn't be mad at seeing him start uh, against Uruguay. I think he could do a really good job, especially since Weston McKinney probably isn't ready to go. At least according to Burhalter, he won't be starting in that game. So I'd love to see more of Luca de la Torre. I thought he was good. Malik Tillman is the, is the last player, Taylor, that I think we haven't mentioned a whole lot yet. I thought uh, I thought overall he was fine, which I think is actually a, a good sign for such yeah. a young player. I think, what, he's 20? I should know that, but I don't. I think he's 20. It's his first game ever with a senior national team. It's a different level against a good opponent. I, I want to give Tillman some grace here. I don't think he was great. He looked a little slow to me. He didn't look like he was quite up to the tempo, but he showed some good skill. He looked relatively comfortable on that left side in the left half space, basically just doing the Christian Pulisic thing, but not dropping quite as much, and the U.S. didn't have as much possession anyway. I, th- I thought he looked okay. Like I thought he looked fine, but for a player like Tillman, for as young as he is in a different set of circumstances with a bunch of people he's never played with before, I think fine is, is pretty okay in a game like this.
1: I love that fine is okay because I love that we're not in a position where it's like we desperately need this player to come in and make an impact because otherwise we are in trouble. I like that we can sort of afford to have a youngster declare to play for the u s get some minutes, not like set the world alight but also not humiliate himself and and I think it's a it's a good start. I'm just very relieved that we're not like really hoping that he comes good and scores a million goals otherwise we're in a lot of trouble so uh i was I was Happy to see Malik Tillman, even if we didn't see a ton from him. The one question I have for you about Luca De La Torre, and we're going long, but I think it's worth it, uh, is that he comes on for Tyler Adams and did, uh, to my mind, stay in that same, at least the positioning of between the other midfielders, which to me means he could be considered a Tyler Adams deputy if need be. Uh, do you think that is possible or did you see that as being a possibility before this game or after this game?
2: Uh, I, I think it's a possibility. I don't know how likely it is to see mm-hmm. to see that sort of thing going forward. I think, you know, because Kellen Acosta isn't available, that probably changed things up a little bit. But Taylor, I love his mobility. I love his ability to, to cover ground and to be quick and in, in possession and out of possession. I'm not opposed to that. It's not something I'd spent a lot of time thinking about before, and I don't expect it's something we'll see a lot more of down the line, but I, I'm i not mad at it, Taylor
1: Rockwell. Yeah. And these are the the sort of little experiments that you need before a World Cup because how often have we seen, I mean, Pablo Mastorani ends up starting in 2002 because Chris Armas gets hurt, and then, oh, we're going to try this, and it works. And, and I think you do have to have that adaptability within the squad that you have. And Greg Berhalter... Uh, was quoted as saying that he knows 19 or 20 of the players that will be on his roster. We're assuming it will be an expanded roster to 26. So there's a few openings, but it seems like ultimately Berhalter knows the core group or more than the core group, but also knows... Who can do what if the situation requires? Brandon Aronson has been playing wide, but if we don't have this guy and don't have that guy and this guy can't go, well, then he can slot it and do that. If Kellen Acosta picks up a little injury and Tyler Adams also has an injury, I guess we can try Luca De La Torre and see what happens. I like that level of experimentation because it feels very representative of what we might actually get at a World Cup.
2: Yeah. No, Taylor, I'm I'm totally with you. I just keep coming back to how much I enjoyed this game and, and some of the progress we're seeing. I don't know that I have a ton else to add. Do you have anything else that that you want to say that we haven't gotten a chance to? I think we've talked plenty. Yeah, yeah, I'm
1: with you. My (laughs) my voice is tired. I think we're there. (laughs) Yeah, it's 1130 at night, I think. And given that we're doing three shows tomorrow, uh, I think think we can give ourselves (laughs) a little bit of a break. Uh, But we will have more U.S. coverage Obviously, we've got that Uruguay-friendly. We've got two Nations League games still to come. But for now, Joe Lowry, thank you for watching the game, for writing an article, for letting me tease you about that article, and then doing some <laughs> wonderful analysis. Uh, Joe Scally's parents, I'm sure, are pleased with your performance.
2: Wow, so many, so, many things to, so many ways to go with that. I'll just say thank you, Taylor. You always <laughs> do a great job kind of shuffling our conversation. I had a ton of fun with this one.
1: Lovely. Well, thank you for that. Listeners, thank you very much for sticking with us. If you did, and if you didn't, you won't hear this, so you're a jerk. But you're dead. Uh, to us. We will talk to you're you dead dead to very us. soon. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. Uh, ha for now.